The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Have you ever finished reading a good novel and at the end you didn't want it to be over? (laughs) Maybe you in your own imagination finished the story, decided how the characters may go on after the chapter concludes. I feel a little bit that way. We're going to conclude Genesis. This is the end of the historical narrative of Joseph. But in God's grace, this story does actually fill in a lot of the details and kind of show us the dot, 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 the rest of the story. So this morning, please follow along. If you need a pew Bible, page 46 is actually the same as chapter 46. That's where we are today. Page 46, Genesis chapter 46. And we conclude here the historical narrative of Joseph. And the title of today's sermon is Joseph Finishing in Faith. As we conclude on our way, we're going to pick up six particular applications that I pray will really affect my life and yours. They're on the bulletin, or if you didn't get that and you're a note taker, I'll try to make them clear as we go through them. Just by way of very quick recap, Joseph received two dreams from God that are revelation of a future in which God would use him to preserve the line of the Messiah. The brothers were so mad about that. There was favoritism. The brothers betrayed Joseph into a pit. They originally planned to kill him. They opportunistically instead sold him into slavery. He then went to a faraway place known as Egypt, which in that time would have been so far from home and from the culture you're accustomed to. He succeeded there. He was very faithful. He showed incredible integrity. And his reward for it was being falsely accused and imprisoned. After years in prison, he receives dreams again, this time through a cupbearer and a chief baker. He interprets them by the power of God. He is forgotten again for at least two more years. He then stands before Pharaoh. He gives all glory to God. He interprets dreams a final time. This time, Pharaoh recognizes the Spirit of God is in this man. Joseph is then amazingly put into the most powerful position in the most important nation at the time. We're 2,000 years B.C. In that time and place, Joseph now has an incredible blessing. He's married. He's kind of moved on. And then wouldn't you know who comes in terms of famine but the very brothers that betrayed him. We looked at that last time. It's a remarkable Uh, record of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of Joseph trusting God's intention, even through their evil intention. Then Joseph's brothers go home and tell their father, Jacob, something that no one thought possible. Not only is is Joseph still alive, he's the one actually that is in control of the world's food supply. And so now what was just read for us is the reunion that's about to happen. Jacob is about to go see his son, Joseph, which he's thrilled about. Now we're going to pick up in chapter 46, verse one through four, and see why God still has to assure Jacob. Look with me in God's word in Genesis 46, verse one. So Israel, and don't forget, that's the other name for Jacob that God has given him. So Israel or Jacob took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. He's going to seek and inquire of the Lord. And verse 2, And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, Here I am. And then God said to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid 
to go down to Egypt. Now, you might be thinking, why would Jacob be afraid? Doesn't he want to reunite with Joseph? Wouldn't this be the most easy trip he's ever taken? But this is where knowing the rest of the Bible is very important. Because God had promised Abraham a special land and a special people. And God came to Jacob. Perhaps you know the the story of Jacob's ladder. This is Genesis 28 where Jacob has a dream. And in Genesis 28, God tells Jacob this, the land on which you lie, I will give to you. So Jacob has been told by God that he is a promised land in a certain place. So as much as he wants to see Joseph, to leave the land seems like he's deviating from what God had promised him. This is why this is such an important thing here in Genesis 46. God is now assuring Jacob that he does have a purpose to fulfill this promise. And look what God says in verse 3. Don't be afraid to go to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. Now that's an incredible change from what he would have originally thought. He's thinking, okay, God's going to make a great people and a great nation, and this is the place. But again, knowing the previous chapters really helps because in Genesis 15, God told Abraham that his descendants would for 400 years be taken to a different place. But in that different place, they would receive great possessions and they would come out of it. So this is a lot of assurance that Jacob needs. So now look in verse 4. Look how tender God is in his promises and how personal they are. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. In fact, it's probably a play on words. God will go down with Jacob, but he will bring Israel back, if you know what I mean. And now notice the personal touch. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So God is promising Jacob, Joseph will be reunited with you, but your life will end Before the full promise has been fulfilled, your life won't end in the promised land. Your life will end in Egypt. So God had promised Abraham a land and a people. And God had affirmed that promise to Jacob. But now Jacob hears from God, that land is not the one that you'll end your life in. You'll end your life in another land. And the people that I've promised, I'm working it, but you won't see the full fulfillment of it. See, Jacob's faith here at the end of his life is remarkable. This is Jacob who couldn't trust God for anything when he was a young man. Had to deceive his father for the blessing. Had to wrestle God until he thought for sure he'd have the promise he wanted. Here he is at the end of his life. He's going to take a 150-mile journey by foot away from the promised land, all the way to Egypt, just trusting that God will keep his word before he sees its final fulfillment. So the record that we have beginning in verse 5 is very important. So look in verse 5. Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan and came into Egypt. Jacob, and notice, all his offspring with him, his sons, his sons' sons, his daughters, his sons' daughters, All his offspring he brought with him to Egypt. Now this is remarkable faith. Jacob now is taking all of his family to a land that's not the promised land because he trusts that God will bring them back. He's taking all of his descendants 
trusting that God will somehow grow them and use the time in Egypt to actually provide the foundational possessions they need. In fact, would you look down in verse 27? And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Now remember how many descendants God told Abraham he would have. They would be as numerous as what? The stars, the sand. I don't think that's 70. (laughs) So obviously at this point, Jacob's faith is being stretched. You don't get to die in the land of promise. You don't get to see the innumerable amount. You have to trust me. I'm the God of your father. So already we have here some incredibly important lessons for us. We might run, wonder in chapter 27, why do we have another genealogy that lists all the names of who was born? Why do we have all these details of this transition? Because it's trying to teach you and I a lesson. Faith in God's promise has to persist even when the fulfillment is in the distant future. Right now there's only 70 They have to trust that one day it'll be innumerable. Right now they're going to the land of Egypt. They have to trust that one day they'll go to the land of promise. This record in chapter 47 is the kind of thing, honestly, that when you're reading your Bible, it seems tedious. Verses 6 through 26, name all these people. Why are these all named? Well, they're named so that we will understand that God is keeping his promise even in the long run, though they don't see it now. We might say it this way, faith in God's purpose requires Jacob to trust God even in a curve in the road, a 150-mile curve (laughs) by foot all the way to Egypt. Now, Jacob, and maybe God's been doing this in your life too, has been learning to trust God through many difficulties and disappointments. Remember, Jacob, as a young man, tricks his own father to try to get a blessing. Later, Jacob has to work out this weird situation with Laban to try to get married. And then Jacob sneaks out in the middle of the night. Remember, Laban is chasing him in Genesis 31. And then who starts to chase him from the other side in Genesis 32? Esau. So here's Jacob in between Laban, who wants to kill him, and Esau, who wants to kill him, which is a common theme in Jacob's life. (laughs) So he's in between these two people that want to kill him. That's where he wrestles with God. That's where he gets a limp. And the limp, you might say, what's the purpose of the limp? From that moment forward, Jacob learns to be dependent on God. He walks with a limp now, not merely physically, but spiritually. Jacob emerges as someone who needs God's protection. He needs it over and over again. In Genesis 35, Simeon and Levi have butchered many people and they're about to be attacked again. We read in Genesis 35 that as they journeyed, God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So here we are now in Genesis 46, but by now Jacob has trusted God and taken an incredible step of difficult faith. Here's a fledgling nation in transit. Here's a census of a small but growing people. Here, though, I want you to notice that not only is God so good that he's accomplishing his big promises, but God is also so good that he has a personal touch in their fulfillment. So look in Genesis 46. Now join me in verse 28, please. Genesis 46, verse 28. Jacob had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph 
to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. And then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father. Remember, he hasn't seen him in at least 25 years. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your face and know that you are still alive. Writing in the 1800s, William Taylor wrote, no matter how old a man may be, the true son is always a boy again when he is beside his father. And no matter how venerable a man the son may be to others, his aged father still regards him as his boy. Here, Israel and Joseph are reunited with the tender touch that God promised in Genesis 46, verse 4. Remember, we just read it. God told Jacob, your son Joseph will close your eyes. Jacob, in faith, took that journey, and now he's seen a little bit of the fulfillment of God's promise. Well, now if you have your bulletin, we're ready for our first of six applications. So number one of six applications. Number one, faith has no expiration date. Our whole life, we walk by faith, not by sight. We not only need to trust God in the beginning and in the middle, but all the way through to the end. Faith has no expiration date. Jacob's limp is the most important part of his life. He learns to trust God's big promise. In fact, Hebrews 11, 8 says it this way, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The previous verse says, As did Isaac and Jacob. But I love how verse 13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them from afar off. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph will die trusting what God said he will do, though not actually receiving it fully in their lifetime. You and I in the same way have a relationship with God that is by faith from first to last. God in his grace fulfills windows into the fullness of his promises to us, but their fullness will never be experienced fully in this lifetime. We take God at his word. We trust his character and we take 150 mile journeys, one faithful step at a time, trusting that he will finish what he has begun. That's why number two on your handout, faith accepts twist because of contentment with God's presence. Why is Jacob able to take a 150-mile twist? The answer is because God told him, I will go with you, and I will bring you out. God's personal presence is the reason Jacob can go. God's personal presence, remember, has been highlighted throughout Joseph's journey as well. He's in prison, but the text says the Lord was with him. He's in the pit, the text says, the Lord was with him. Again, William Taylor writes, Joseph had a constant recognition of God's presence. That seems to be the one single, all-dominating consciousness of his life. He believed in God, not as far off, but as near. Not as sitting aloof, but as overruling and controlling. Not as an enemy to be feared, but as a friend to be loved and trusted and served. 
No persecution could keep Joseph from realizing God was with him. No prosperity could blind him to the fact that it was to God he owed it all. Taylor concludes, Joseph had faith almost with the strength of sight, living as seeing him who was invisible. We're to have the same quality. Second Corinthians 4 says in verse 16, we should not lose heart. Even if our outer man is perishing, our inner is renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are temporal. The things that are unseen is eternal. God's presence is what enables Jacob and Joseph to trust God in the big things or in the small things. Now God has told us as well, in Hebrews 13, verse 5, that he promises to never leave us or forsake us. Did you know that that promise is a quotation of the Old Testament? It's a quotation of what God told Moses. It's a quotation of what God told um, Joshua in Joshua 24. These are the same phrases God has been giving throughout history to his people. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. God's promises of his presence are what enable us to move through difficult seasons of faith. But also, I just want to point out this to you. Genesis is recording the history of God's peculiar people. Those who trust him are those who can claim his presence. I want to make sure you understand this morning. I hope you love the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Verse 4, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. But this morning, be sure that you've received Christ's invitation because those promises of God's presence are for his peculiar people. And so I'd certainly want to encourage you this morning to come and put your faith in Jesus so that you too can say, the Lord is my help and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? presence of God is for his people. So call out on the name of the Lord if you haven't, so that you can know that he is with you. Let's pick up again in Genesis now 47. We've seen application number one and number two, but now let's pick up in Genesis 47 and read the text as this reunion builds. In verse 47, verse one, so Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all they possess have come from the land of Canaan and they are now in the land of Goshen. For time's sake, we did not read the end of chapter 46, but in the end of chapter 46, Joseph sort of uh, prepared his brothers and his father to talk the right way in front of Pharaoh. And so now we'll pick that up in verse 2. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. You can understand why he'd be selective in this particular presentation. Verse 3, Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? Frankly, he's probably asking to make sure that they're not immigrants who don't have a job. And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. In other words, we we won't consume, we won't be a burden to you. Verse 4, they said to Pharaoh, we've come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. This is an incredible thing that's happening here because 
God's people are being blessed by the most powerful person in the land. Don't you remember Genesis 12, verse 3, when God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. Here that's happening. But notice something else that's happening. God is making sure that Israel is in their own section. So in other words, God's people are both blessing the nations, but also distinct from the nations. Don't you remember Jesus in John 14? I want you to go in the world, but not to be of the world. Actually, the same thing is happening here in Genesis 47. God has put his people in a position to bless the public square, but they're distinct from the public square. Verse 7, then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. What an incredible meeting of these two historical figures. And notice, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many of the days of the years of your life? The Egyptians were uh, sort of obsessed with living a long life. How can we live as long as possible? And apparently Jacob looked old, so he wanted to know, how old are you? Verse 9, Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. They have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers. Abraham lived to be 175. Isaac, 180. Joseph, or sorry, Jacob is the longest living man after the flood. But verse 10, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. Again, we see the blessing of God's people returning back on them just as God promised Abraham. So now we pick up with the famine. Let's look in Genesis 47. Let's jump down to verse 13. The famine's severity really reaches its worst point here, verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. For time's sake, let me summarize a little bit here. Here's what happens. The famine is so bad that the people first bring money to buy food. And then they run run out of money. And then they bring animals to trade animals for food. And then they run out of animals. And then they bring their own property. Here, take our land for food. And they run out of land. And then finally, they they offer themselves. Here, take our very lives for food. So let's pick up in verse 23. Now, Joseph said to the people, behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh and four fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. Let's pause in verse 24. We've had 4,000 years since this passage is recording historically. And so we've had a lot of years to think about how these things work economically, state and control, and probably a lot of things are already percolating in your head. Slavery, how how does all this work out? Well, in 2000 BC, when Iraqi farmers gave up their property to Hammurabi, Hammurabi took two-thirds of their property for himself. So I just want you to know that by the market standard in the day, Joseph is remarkably gracious. Notice also what he says in verse 24. He says, actually, the land will be your own, four-fifths of it. So he's, he's actually saying, okay, there'll be taxation, but you're allowed property. No one else did that at that time. That's why the text actually ends in verse 26 saying, this stands to this day. Meaning Joseph's principles of civics lasted for thousands of years. 
So lest you think that Joseph is doing something that's taken advantage of him, it's helpful to know culturally he's actually the most gracious civic leader that had ever lived before Christ. In fact, they recognize that. So look in verse 25 of chapter 47. They said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. And remember in that day and age, service was often economic and it would cease once you've paid your debts. So actually one commentator writes this, although the Egyptians are prepared to sell themselves into slavery, Joseph instead introduces a scheme whereby the people remain largely independent and self-sufficient. Though they must give one-fifth to Pharaoh's taxation, they readily acknowledge Joseph has saved their lives. This portrays Joseph as a fair and just administrator who does not exploit a tragic situation for his own benefit. Now, if you know much about the Bible, the book after Genesis is Exodus. And how does civics change in the Exodus? (laughs) Remember, there's a Pharaoh, we read in Exodus chapter 1, who many years later had not heard of the name Joseph and had forgotten all of his principles and policies. And remember how that Pharaoh saw all the Israelites who were increasing in number. He said, let us deal harshly with them. See, Joseph's attitude and his character is an incredible example of Christian ethics in civics. So let me say some applications to those of you who have vocations that affect the public. Those of you who work in law enforcement or you write policy or you're in politics or education or healthcare. Notice that scripture here presents Joseph as a laudable public servant who puts the needs of the public above the interest of himself. Let us surely recognize the impact of our own testimony as salt and light. May we in our own vocation be able to be a blessing to the public we serve in such a way that it's clear that we've put the public above our own self-interest. May we pray for governance like that. Here in Genesis 47, then, look in verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt and in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Remember, that's what God had told Abraham would happen. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147. Now verse 29. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, Jacob... He called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. But let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. And then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now on your bulletin, on your handout, this is now point number three. Number one, told us about our faith having no expiration date. Number two was faith even in twist. But now number three, recognize that God is working through faithful believers to fulfill his big good purposes. Joseph's faithfulness matters. Jacob's faithfulness matters. Let me just encourage you today. Don't underestimate what God is doing through your faithful obedience in your daily vocation. Don't underestimate that. Here's just regular faithfulness by by Joseph and Jacob, and God's doing something huge through it, actually answering his original promises. Now Genesis 48 actually continues that theme of the importance of faithfulness because we have blessings being given. 
In Genesis 48, Joseph brings his two sons. Remember, he had Manasseh and Ephraim. And we'll pick up in verse 17. So look in God's word, Genesis 48, verse 17. Jacob, this is before he's died, obviously, and he's about to bless Manasseh and Ephraim. And look in verse 17. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand, that's the hand of strength and honor and blessing, on the head of Ephraim, which was the second born, it displeased Joseph, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Now, the irony is so thick for those of you that know the Bible, because remember, Jacob was second born and bamboozled his dad out of Esau's blessing because he and his mom were in cahoots to steal the birthright. Joseph has integrity that his dad did not have as a young man. He's broken the cycle. He wants to make sure that doesn't happen. But actually, verse 18, we see God's mysterious wisdom. Joseph said to his father, no, not this way, my father, since this one is firstborn. Put your right hand on him. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. And he also shall become a people. And he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Again, God's mysterious sovereignty at play. Verse 21, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die. Now notice Jacob's faith as an elderly man. But God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Now, all this stuff seems small and it seems insignificant. And so when you get to Hebrews chapter 11, a passage of the Bible you perhaps know well is the Hall of Faith. Hebrews 11 verse 21 focuses on this. Of all the things of Jacob's life that are noteworthy, Hebrews 11.21 says this was the most important. The most important thing Jacob ever did was this right here. Why? How is this the most important part of Jacob's life? That he's blessing Manasseh and Ephraim? Here's the answer. Jacob dies trusting what God said he will do even though he'll never see it. Remember, Jacob blessing his sons means he's making them tribes for a nation that they don't have right now and for a land they don't possess right now. And he's taken two of Joseph's sons and made them equal to Joseph's own brothers. They're going to all be tribes. In fact, Hebrews 11 verse 21 adds this detail. It says, when Jacob died blessing Joseph's sons, he bowed his head in worship. Don't you think probably Jacob bowed his head in remembrance to Joseph's original dreams? That they would bow in faith in God's promise. This is now number four on your takeaway applications. God's sovereign purposes are often in the short term immediately mysterious to us. There are many things that God does that in the tunnel vision of the present make very little sense. Why Ephraim over Manasseh? Why would Joseph be sent to Egypt? Why is all this happening the way it's happening? But just like we read Hebrew backwards to understand it, so when we look in hindsight at the providence that God has woven in our life, much more makes sense. Jacob, much to his credit, dies not having seen it all be fulfilled, but trusting God will fulfill it. 
In other words, Jacob believed words that would yet be written in Isaiah 55, verse 8. For my thoughts, declares the Lord, are not your thoughts. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. Let me just remind you this morning, a given moment of your life is not the sum total of what God is doing. A given moment of your life is not the sum total of what God is doing. One day you and I will look back from glory. But from now, look up. Because a given moment will not be able to let you know what God is doing. So trust God's heart even when you cannot trace God's hand. Now in Genesis 49, Jacob blesses all the sons. Judah's is of note. Look in Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be the neck of your enemies. Your father's son will bow to you. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. To him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Jacob is here promising that through the line of Judah will come the Messiah. Later, he closes by commending Joseph in verses 22 through 26. We won't read all that for time's sake, but would you look down in verse 28, please, of Genesis 49. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing, don't miss this, suitable to them. Jacob is saying, because of who you are and how you've lived, here's the prophetic future for you and your tribe. Now, here's why this is very important. This leads to number five on your handout. Number five, how we live matters. Have you ever read these blessings in the Bible and you're like, what is that? My grandpa never did that with me. <laughs> you know, no one ever had me sit on his knee and tell me how I've lived. Why does the Bible record these patriarchal blessings? What in the world are we supposed to learn from them? And here's the answer. The answer is we're supposed to see a preview of the judgment day. Perhaps you've heard it said this way. Uh, after you die, you either go to heaven or hell based on your relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is exactly right. So the most important thing to know is John 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes into the Father except through me. We must know, most importantly, that the only way to eternally have God's presence is to come through repentant faith in God's Son, Jesus. But some people then act like there is nothing else that happens, which isn't biblically correct. In Romans 2 and Revelation, we read that all who are rejected, all who refuse Christ, actually have their deeds exposed to them. And in 1 Corinthians, we read that every Christian, every one of us, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and our lives will also be revealed, and we'll find out if we had wood, hay, or stubble. In fact, 1 Corinthians says some of us will be saved by the skin of our teeth. We will have eternity with Christ, but everything we've done will be burned up. So please hear number five, how you live matters. Now, if we took the time to read all of Genesis 49, we would find that unsurprisingly, Jacob condemns Reuben and Levi and Simeon because they didn't live well. And Jacob commends Judah and he commends Joseph. Now he says it's by the grace of God. There's actually five descriptions of Joseph being strengthened by the Almighty One. But don't miss that you can be a Christian and live well, and you can be a Christian and live poorly. 
It's not only that we have an eternity in a place, it's that how we have lived matters and it will be brought up. This is important to know because your life has significance. The decisions you make matter. The choices you prioritize matter. Kevin DeYoung wrote a very good, little, accessible book, and I would strongly encourage you to read it. It's called The Whole in Our Holiness. He helps explain this in a way that I think affects the way most of us live. Here's what he writes. It's true that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but this does not mean that God will condone all our thoughts and behaviors. Though in Christ God overlooks our sins in a judicial sense, he is not blind to them. Kevin DeYoung later writes in the same book, we usually think of the law leading us to the gospel. And this is true. We see God's standard, we see our sin, and then we see our need for a savior. But it's also just as true that the gospel leads us to the law. In Exodus, God delivers his people from Egypt and then he gives them the 10 commandments. In Romans 1 through 11, God explains our sin and our need for a savior. And then in chapter 12 through 16, he tells us how to live. Most of the New Testament letters actually work that way. So Kevin DeYoung concludes, Any gospel which purports to save people without also transforming them is easy believism. If you think being a Christian is nothing more than saying a prayer or joining a church, you've confused real grace with cheap grace. Those who are justified will be sanctified. So when you read these passages of the blessings, notice that they record how they lived and then they show how it will have an eternal impact. Such will be the same for us all. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but that does not mean that how we live is insignificant. We pick up now in chapter 49. Verse 29. Then he commanded them, this is Jacob speaking, I'm to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in there was bought from the Hittites. And when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Joseph then goes before Pharaoh in chapter 50. Look in verse 6. After telling Pharaoh, can I have permission to go? Notice this Pharaoh said, go up. Quite a big difference from when Moses said, let my people go, and he re refused centuries later. So this Pharaoh, God had given blessing with, and he blessed them and told him to go. And then the text records Joseph and all his brothers and all their kids and all their family leaving Egypt and going hundreds of miles away to bury their father in the land of promise. This certainly presages the exodus which is about to come. Remember, did not God say at the very beginning of chapter 46, I will go with you and I will bring you out. Now we see the main point of exodus, uh, I'm sorry, of the book of Genesis really and of the historical narrative of Joseph. So look in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 50. Then Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead and they said, oh no. It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. Let's pause here. This is such a relevant human feeling. 
you're like, I've asked for forgiveness. I think I've been forgiven, but I don't, I don't know. What if something changes? What if things aren't right? This is so the way we think, even in our relationship with God. I've asked him to forgive me. I think maybe he forgave me, but what if? And so that's how they're feeling right now. Verse 16, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, (laughs) I love this, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. So they invoke their dead father to try to use that as a way to leverage Joseph into treating them the right way. But has not Joseph already shown them that he stands ready to forgive and that he has not leveraged their sin against them? We can, we can picture ourselves here before the judgment seat trying to bring in a witness on our own behalf when we don't need one. We have the advocate. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God. Verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I didn't even plan on bringing this up today. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and do it. I was in the, I'm teaching the um, elementary students right now. My, my, my wife and I are. So I was reading through the kids' Bible in there. I'm not trying to be overly critical. I'm thankful for kids' Bibles. But obviously they rewrite the Bible in different language. And I, I read today's passage, and here's what the kids' Bible said in the nursery. It said, um, what you meant for evil, God turned around and turned it into good. That is not what Joseph says. And many people wrongly hear that, and it causes you to totally miss the point. Actually, what the Bible says is what you were intending for evil at the exact time and in the exact same event, God was intending for good. So one singular event, two different parties, two different intentions. Can't mess that up, because otherwise you'll have no power to forgive. It's not like God was making a counter move. God was intentionally doing good while the brothers were intentionally doing evil. In fact, Joseph even sees the big picture, he says, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I pray that you grasp the significance of what Joseph is saying so that you can say to those who have wronged you, verse 21, do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And then he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is nearing the end of the Genesis narrative. In our time together, has God helped you better learn to recognize tragedies as God's intention for good? Has God helped you more quickly forgive even the intentional evil of those who have wronged you? Do you know Romans 8 unpacks Genesis 50? Paul unpacks the words, of Joseph when he says in Romans 8:28 for God is working all things for good to those who love him who are called according to his purpose aren't these words perfectly understood in the garden of gethsemane jesus is praying sweating drops of blood god is this really your good intention this cup but the reason we call Good Friday Good Friday is because what crucifiers intended for evil, God intended for good. So it has always been. But now the sixth and final application for us today is how we die matters. Number six, how we die matters. And here's the end. 
Let's read the final verses. Genesis 50, verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house, Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. What a blessing. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him. And he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith, verse 22, says that Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus and gave directions concerning his bones. Listen to number six, how you die matters. Where would you direct your bones? Do you know where your bones are going? See, we have a great high priest who has told us this. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I have gone to prepare a place for you. And if I have gone to prepare a place for you, I will come back so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way. Thomas said, we don't know the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, Jesus has told us he's gone to prepare a place for us. Let me ask you again. Do you know where your bones are going? I think the evangelist Billy Graham said it best. In his lifetime, he said, Someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I shall be more alive than I am now. I will have just changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. Isn't it interesting in Genesis that we actually read the record of how Jacob's bones were moved. But we don't read the record of Joseph's bones being moved, do we? In fact, you know what the word Genesis means, right? It means beginnings. It starts with creation. What does it end with? A coffin. There's a promised land. Where does the book end? Egypt. I love that it ends that way. Let me tell you why. Because that's where we live. We don't live in the life of it all being fulfilled. We don't live a life of it's all come to be. We live in Egypt. Our life feels like it ends in a coffin. Do you have the assurance Joseph had before the Bible had ever even been written? This is not where it ends for me, so don't you leave my bones here. You know, it was 400 years later when Moses brought his bones out of Egypt. And then it was under Joshua, Joshua 24, that his bones were finally buried in the promised land. But Joseph knew way back then, I know what God has said, and I know where I'm going. I hope you have such assurance. In our life, sometimes it feels like it ends in the coffin and it ends in Egypt. But don't you remember when all the apostles thought it ended in the tomb? And then they're all like, it's over. And then three days later, there's an angel sitting on the stone that's rolled away. And never forget what he said. He said, he is not here for he is risen just as he said. See, God's promises are the ground upon which Joseph planted his life and death. 
and you can trust him too. Let's close in prayer together this morning. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for what Jesus told the Pharisees in John 5. He told them, had you believed Moses, you would believe in me because Moses wrote about me. And how could we miss Jesus in Genesis? It is so clear that the apparent hopelessness of a coffin in Egypt prefigures the apparent hopelessness of the Son of God in a tomb. And Lord, we are so grateful that the angel could say, He is not here. He is risen. Just as He said, Lord, every promise that You have made will surely come true. But we struggle because... In our life, it sometimes feels like there's a real twist and we didn't anticipate that twist and we thought this was going to happen then and then it seems like maybe it's not going to happen in our lifetime. So thank you for recording Jacob never getting to see what he had to trust by faith would come to be fulfilled. Thank you for recording Joseph trusting by faith that the exodus would happen, that the promised land would be inherited. Lord, we still live in a world where all the things you say that are going to happen, we, we don't see them a lot. So sometimes it feels like we must have gotten off the path. Lord, I thank you that you have ordained the path. That you know every seemingly circuitous route, that they are not detours, that they are foreordained paths. And I thank you that the good shepherd will lead us through them. And I thank you that the good shepherd will lead us safely home. So Lord, let not our faith have an expiration date. Let us walk by faith until we see him face to face. Let us not be concerned about twists. Let us trust even the mysterious providence that seems to make no sense. Let us know, Lord, that how we live matters, but how we die matters. May we die in faith that we will be absent from the body, but present immediately with our Lord. Perhaps someone this morning is hearing about these promises to your people, but they haven't yet come to be your people. Help them know how John 1 says it. To as many as received Jesus, they were given the right to become the sons and daughters of God. You have made your people a great possession, and our inheritance is Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for him. May we rest in him this morning. And may we trust him to lead us safely home. In his name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.